Okay, welcome back to RUF. Hope you guys had a great spring break. It's really good to see you. It seems like it's been a crazy semester with the weather and uh, all sorts of things. And so I'm glad, hopefully, we can get into some sort of regular rhythm here uh, for the rest of the semester uh, with RUF. Uh, let me highlight one announcement. Summer conference, if you're on the fence about going, you totally should go. It's one of the best things we do in RUF, um, just nationally. It's a great way to get great teaching, to get to know people better, and to get away at the beach. And one of the things I love the most is it's not overscheduled. You'll have from noon till 6 every day to do whatever you want at the beach with some great people. So hope you'll consider that. If by chance you've paid already and you didn't get the $25 discount, please send, see me and I'll make sure you get that discount. So sign up by April the 10th. All the information's on the handout. We have been studying the book of Judges this semester, and just, again, since it's been like three weeks since we've looked at Judges, let me give us a quick review and summarize the theme we're seeing all the way through. On the one hand, we're seeing God's rebellious people. We're seeing that God's people aren't all that great. And our knee-jerk reaction is to look at a passage or a book like Judges and say, yeah, you know, look at those people. <laughs> but Judges is meant to show us our own heart and show us our own rebellion and our own sin against God. So on the one hand, it shows us God's rebellious people, but on the other hand, it shows us God's relentless grace. It shows us that in the midst of their rebellion, God is really gracious and God is really kind and God is really gentle and loving towards the people that he's in covenant with. And we're going to see that once again tonight in chapter 7. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, my prayer is that uh, you would come and be near you are high and exalted. You are far above the heavens. You are sovereign. You are king. You are Lord. And yet, the Bible tells us that you are near to your people. That you are with us in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through. And that you actually care about the small details of our lives. Father, would you bring that nearness into this room tonight? I pray that we would hear the gospel as if we were hearing it for the first time. Father, we live in a um, culture in the South where some of us have grown up with this and our hearts can get hardened and it can just bounce off of us and not move us. And I pray that you would move us, encourage us, be beautiful to us in a very real and tangible way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you believe to be the most dangerous heresy in the church today? What do you believe to be the most dangerous heresy in Christianity? You know, when we hear that word heresy, we often think of something bold and ugly and uh, really scary uh, when we hear a word like heresy. But I want you to know that the heresy or the thing that I have in mind is not bold and ugly, but it's rather subtle and very attractive. And oftentimes it seems so right. And yet I believe it's very, very dangerous. What is it? 
Well, it is the belief or the emphasis on what we do for God rather than what God does for us. You might have heard it said this way at some point in your life. God helps those who help themselves. Which isn't in the Bible, by the way. It's interesting, a few years ago, Harper, Harper's Magazine did a, uh, an article. It was called The Christian Paradox. And one of the things that the article found was that three-quarters of Christians in America actually believe that the Bible taught that God helps those who help themselves. Biblically speaking, nothing could be further from the truth. Because the Bible says that God helps the helpless. God helps the undeserving, the empty-handed, those who are weak and who come to Him ready to receive His grace as a gift. And my question is, as we begin, do you believe that tonight? And you might think, yes, of course, Jason, God helps the helpless. God helps the weak. I believe that. But does your life reflect it? You see, oftentimes we have this tendency to trust in our own efforts in order to deliver us rather than trusting God. Just think about it. When you feel, when you are confident, most often your confidence comes because you feel competent in something or something really great has happened in your life. For example, when you knock the exam out of the park, when you get asked out on that date, when you get invited to the party, when you go to the job interview and you crush it and you get the job offer, we move out into the world in those situations with great strength, don't we? Ready to take on the world, ready for whatever it is that life's going to throw at us. But the reverse is also true, isn't it? When you don't feel competent, when things aren't going so well and there's been a wrench thrown into your plans, oftentimes we move out into the world with great insecurity. We move out into the world with fear and anxiety and worry. And what that reveals to us is just how much we put our trust, think about it, it reveals how much we put our trust in our own ability rather than putting our trust in the Lord. And I believe it reveals tonight to us just how desperately we need a book like Judges. Because the book of Judges over and over and over comes to us and says, God hates pride. Judges comes and says, just like the rest of the Bible, and says, God's, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And one of the things we're going to learn in Judges chapter 7 is that God doesn't value strength, but He actually values weakness. And so what that means for us tonight as we think about this passage is that if you are ever going to connect with God at all, you've got to get in touch with your weakness. Isn't that, man, that's hard. Because we hate weakness. But what we're going to see is if we're ever going to connect with God, if we're ever going to get the gospel, we've got to get in touch with weakness. 
We've got to get some sort of understanding on the idea of weakness, and this passage gives it to us. Because it shows us tonight the who of weakness and the why of weakness. And you can see an outline printed before you in your, uh, on your announcement sheet, the who and the why. Let's look at number one, the who. So if you've been coming this semester, you know that we, in Judges, we see over and over this thing called the cycle of the Judges. And now we find ourselves in the middle of a cycle. Okay, so God's people, the Israelites, have rebelled against God and turned their back on Him and started to worship the idols that are around them. And God... In that, at that point in time, sends an oppressor, in this case Midian, in order to oppress and terrorize them. At some point, the people of God, and you'll see this over and over, they cry out and say, God, save us, we're sorry, we know that life is better with you. And so God raises up a judge. Now, judge, don't think legal judge. In the book of Judges, a judge is a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. And in this case, he raises up a man named Gideon to come and to save his people. The backstory. If you were here a few weeks ago when we talked about Gideon in chapter 6, because Gideon takes up a huge chunk of the book of Judges, just like Samson does in a few weeks, we learned something about Gideon, and that is that when God first came to Gideon, Gideon was hiding. He was shaking in his boots because he was so afraid of the Midianites. And God comes to this fearful man and says, Midian, uh, says Gideon, I want you to go and save my people from the hand of the Midianites. And Gideon doesn't like this plan at all. And so he doubts God. And he says, God, I need to know if you've got my back in this. And so if you were here, you remember that he lays out the fleece and asks God to make it wet. And then the next night, he asks God to make the fleece dry. And the bottom line of what we see in the life of Gideon is that over and over and over, he's fearful and he's faithless. And that brings us to the passage that we're looking at tonight. Look at verses 10 through 14 with me. Gideon's not done asking God for reassurance. Gideon is afraid. He still wants reassurance. And I want you to note how God responds. He doesn't fly off the handle. God doesn't get angry. He doesn't put Gideon in his place, but he's patient with him. And he says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just go to the Midianite camp. And I want you to just listen. And so he goes and he listens, if you remember the passage being read. And he hears a soldier, he overhears a soldier saying, a loaf of bread will knock over a tent. And another soldier comes and says, that's the sword of Gideon. And the Lord has given Midian and all of the camp into Gideon's hands. And so God in his kindness, in his grace and patience, actually shows and reassures Gideon that he's committed to him. That he's really there and he's really going to make good on his word. Lots of you here tonight can relate to Gideon, can't you? 
You're not all that strong. Oftentimes you feel very weak. You feel like you're full of doubt. You're full of fear. You're full of insecurity. And somewhere along the lines, you have bought into the lie that God will not use you until you live up or meet some certain standard that you have for your life. And the only problem with the standard is oftentimes the standard that we have in our heart and in our minds, though we would never say it, it's something we've created and it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. And so we say things like this in our hearts. God won't use me unless I'm on fire for Jesus. God won't use me unless I'm really, really passionate. And so I've got to do something so that I can be more passionate for Him. God won't use me until I get my prayer life together. Or God won't use me unless I get up every morning and start to read my Bible more regularly or unless I get my theology right. And though we would never say this out loud, what we are saying in our heart of hearts is I've got to be strong. Because the only people on God's team are the people that are spiritually strong. And if that's what you believe, with all due respect, you've totally missed the whole point of Christianity. Because Christianity in life with God has nothing to do with your strength. But it's all about weakness. Francis Schaeffer, he was a seminary professor and a philosopher at Covenant Theological Seminary years ago in St. Louis. And he was asked one time in a conversation, in a panel discussion, publicly he was asked this question. Who do you believe to be the most influential and important Christian in the world right now? And when we hear a question like that, our mind initially goes to Billy Graham, John Piper, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, or whoever it is that we look up to in our faith. That's the most influential Christian. Listen to how he answers the question. He says, we don't even know her name. But she's somewhere on the other side of the world in a distant country serving people in obscurity and she's on her knees praying constantly. We don't even know her. That is the most important Christian in the world right now. Friends, God only uses weakness. God doesn't use you in spite of your weakness. God uses you because of your weakness. You see, that's the glory of Christianity. That's the glory of the Gospel. God comes to you and He says, I love you for you. He comes to you and says, I love you as you are and I am going to use you as you are. Go back to the hymn we sang earlier, Jesus, I come. You should go and read that again tonight because what it says is we come to Jesus and He uses weak Wounded, sick, and sore people like me and you. That's the beauty of Christianity. Where do you need to repent tonight of your pride? Friends, 
Where do you need to repent of your boasting? Nothing in the hands do we bring, as the hymn says. Simply to the, to the cross we cling. That's the first point. The who of weakness. Secondly, we see the why of weakness. Look at verses 2 through 7. So Gideon has gathered up this army, and he has an army of 32,000 soldiers. That's a pretty good-sized army, but nothing compared to Midian. Look at the size of his army, 135,000 soldiers. Verse 2, God says, we got a problem. Gideon, you've got too many people in your army. Can you imagine the response to that question? We need to get your army down because you've got too many soldiers. And so in verse 3, he tells Gideon to go to the army and say, if you are afraid, leave now. 22,000 soldiers turn and walk away. I'm sure he was very encouraged at this point. So now we're down to 10,000. In verse 4, God says, yeah, still too many. And so he tells them to separate the soldiers based on how they drink water. And he says, those that lap up the water like a dog, those are the ones I want you to keep. And those who kneel down to drink the water, those are the ones that you want to send home. And out of 10,000 soldiers, only 300 lapped up the water like a dog. And there's been lots of speculation about the selection process. But the bottom line is this. God, the point of this is that God is simply whittling down the army. So that now we have 300 men versus 135,000 men. And what that would be like is taking this room, adding 100 people to it, and going to war against 135,000 people. Why? Why in the world would God do this and make Gideon's army so small? Is he simply being cruel? Is God saying, I just want to sit back and enjoy how terrified they are? Well, the good thing about this passage is we don't have to guess. Look at verse 2. He actually tells us a very important verse in the passage. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Let me read that again. Why does he whittle down the army so that Israel will not boast in themselves but will boast in God? He prevents them. The reason why he does this is because he wants to prevent them. And friends, he wants to prevent us tonight from ever thinking that we have saved ourselves. God wants to get them in touch with their weakness. And he wants to get us in touch with our weakness tonight so that we know that salvation is from his hand and not from ours. That it's something that has not earned or merited, but from beginning to end, salvation is by grace alone. And so he whittles the army down so that they would have nothing to take credit for. You see, God knows our hearts, doesn't he? 
God knows that you and I are glory thieves. God knows that if there is the slightest possibility for us to take credit for something and to get glory, that we will take that opportunity. You see, the Bible says that the default mode of your heart and my heart is pride. The default mode of our heart is self-sufficiency and self-reliance. But the God in the book of Judges, the God of Christianity, and this is good news, though it's hard news, says that I love my people enough to disappoint them. I love my people enough to, in a sense, force them to depend on me and to put their trust in me. Because you see, our problem in life comes when we want good things too much. Our problem comes when we want good things too much. Fear, anger, discouragement come because we have made idols out of good things and we've made them ultimate things and we start looking to those things and on an emotional level, we start looking to those things in our lives to save us, to give us worth, and to give us significance. And oftentimes, it's only when those things are removed that we really turn back to God and start to serve Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's what this story is showing us. Gideon would be tempted to say, I've got the the power, you're with me, and I've got 32,000 soldiers, I've got fighting men, and God basically takes away every single one of them. Why? Because He wants Gideon to trust Him in a new way. He wants Gideon to follow Him and to deepen his relationship with him so that he would trust him more. God does that in our lives, doesn't he? Sometimes God comes into your life and he strips something away from you that you're putting your hope and your trust and your confidence in. You start to build your life on that dating relationship. You start to put your confidence in that relationship and your trust. And then all of a sudden that relationship gets stripped away from you. Or maybe you start putting your confidence in your willpower and in your self-control and in your discipline and in your ability to say no and then boom! You think you've got the addiction beat. And then it comes roaring back. Or maybe it is that you do something that you said even last semester that you would never do. Or maybe your confidence and your hope is in your achievement and in your success and in the fact that you have always gotten everything that you've ever wanted and everything that you've ever gone out for and every grade... And then all of a sudden, that foundation starts to shake. Because God comes in and strips something from you. And you apply for the job and don't get it. Or you try to get into medical school and they deny you. Or you apply for some summer internship and they say no. And again, why? 
Why would God do such a thing? God would do such a thing so that you would have nowhere else to run but to Jesus. So that you would have no other cry than a cry for mercy. So that you would stop going to God to get things from Him and instead start going to God to get God. You see, God strips things from us because oftentimes we don't realize that God is all we need until God is all we have. You see, God loves you enough that He will give up nothing but pursuing you until He gets your whole heart. And the question tonight that I want you to think about is what is God using in your life right now to show you your weakness? What is God using in your life in this way? And when you bump up against that, does that simply annoy you? Or does it drive you to the foot of the cross? Does it drive you into the loving arms of God? You see, that's the great thing about Christianity. The thing about Christianity is this idea of weakness makes it different than any other philosophy and religion. Because religion comes and says you are saved by the strength of your performance. It's saved, you're saved by you being good enough and by doing the right thing and being strong. That's how you're saved in the end. But Christianity comes, the gospel comes, which is not religion, and says you are weak, but God is strong. You don't love God, but God first loved you. You're not all that good, but He is good. Yesterday, one of the things I do to try to serve our family is I take the girls to school in the morning, and it allows me to get some extra time with uh, my daughters. Uh, Three of them are in school, and so I take all of them uh, to the carpool. And yesterday morning, we loaded up the the minivan, and we're going to Della Davidson, which is where my oldest daughter, Kate, is in school. And we're going down Highway 7, and if you know where Della is, it's by the movie theater, and it's right by the new high school. And so we get off in Sisk Avenue, we take a right, and the sun is blinding. I mean, it is shining so bright, I have to put down the visor, the girls are like, whoa, and uh, Kate says, if you looked at the sun, would it hurt your eyes? Uh, you know, can, would it blind you? And I said, well, you're probably not good for your eyes. Don't look into the sun. And uh, then Elizabeth chimes in and says, Daddy, is that what Jesus is like? Like the sun? And I said, well, you know, actually it is. Revelation chapter 1 says that the face of Jesus is like the sun shining in full strength. And so, yeah, that's kind of what Jesus is like. And Kate chimes in, my oldest, and says, well, so when we get to heaven, will we be able to see Jesus? And I said, yeah, absolutely. That's going to be, that's, the, that's our hope. That's what we're living for. That's what we're excited about as Christians. And then from the back seat, and right, these are the kind of conversations. We don't have them often, but this was just a great day, I guess. And so all of a sudden, Ann Wright from the back seat yells up, 
So when I get to heaven, can I run to Jesus? And I said, and right, you know what? It's actually even better than that. Because Jesus is going to run to you. And he's going to give you the biggest hug. And she smiled and said, really? (laughs) That's why Christianity is such good news. Because it comes to us and says that Jesus actually runs towards weak people like me and you, not away from them. Christianity comes and says that God came into the world in the person of Jesus and He became weak in order to save people like me who don't love Him well, who don't love others well, and who aren't all that good most of the time. Jesus says that He came not for the righteous, not for the healthy, but He came for the sick, He came for the weak, and He came for sinners. Christianity is that you are saved by radical grace. So does God help those who help themselves? I hope you know by now the answer is an emphatic no. God helps the weak. God helps the helpless, the broken, and the empty-handed. Let's pray.